here's to courageous pioneers who understand a legacy is multifaceted. Whether you are an independent entrepreneur or someone who is part of a family business, you too can leave something of value behind for a greater purpose. Perhaps your legacy will improve workplace cultures, seize authentic moments, or inspire others with your talent. Your host, Angelina Carlton, is the founder of Design Your Legacy, a boutique advisory firm based in Beverly Hills, California. She is a mentor and coach to leaders like you and has contributed to Alliance, a philanthropy magazine, as well as to women in family business. She has been recognized by Los Angeles Biz as an LA woman of influence, as well as by World HRD Congress for her work. Remember, you deserve great coaching because your legacy is worth completing. Hello, everyone. I'm Angelina Carlton hostess of the Design Your Legacy podcast, where I look to distill the best practices, positive examples in action, and the best ideas to inspire you. As today's affluent are two-thirds self-made, I hope to invite a variety of guests from many walks of life and income levels to bring you their insights and experiences. These guests range from family office professionals, Hollywood directors, to those in Generation Z, as they each contribute their thought leadership to this subject of legacy. I hope to provide interesting guests who challenge your beliefs with their strong bias towards optimism and how you too can value your life, time, and personal legacy. This morning, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Jamie Traeger Mooney. She specializes in the emotional impact of wealth on inheritors, women, and couples. She works with multi-generational families, helping them to uh, concretize their values, develop a vision for their future, and create sound governance structures. Her personal experience as a second-generation owner of a family business and board member of her family's foundation, combined with her theoretical and practical experience, expertise in wealth psychology, has given her a unique sensitivity on issues surrounding the intergenerational family dynamics of affluence. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning, Angelina. Um, so tell me, how did you get into this work? Well, as you said in your bio, I come to this work both from a personal background and a professional background. So my personal background is that of growing up in a family of wealth. My um, father started a chain of roller skating rinks, um, which has become the largest chain of roller skating rinks in the United States. Um, and uh that and other businesses that he was a part of helped to really shift. He grew up lower middle class and um, really shift the socioeconomic status that he raised us in. And he was very open. Both my parents were very open growing up about money and wealth and talking about um, what it means, what it doesn't mean. Um, so that was always something very um, normal for me. And then, although I found that outside of my family, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to talk about those feelings. Um, then when I got a PhD in clinical psychology and started my clinical practice, I lived in a fairly affluent area in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I was really struck that um, my clients would talk to me about almost everything. They talked to me a lot about sex. They talked to me about relationships. 
um, it didn't seem like there are a lot of taboos except money. And unless I was working with like a Berkeley student um, who you know was struggling with money, um, money just, it, it, it wasn't even at all a part of the conversation. It was just crickets. And I started to get really curious about what people aren't talking about and the conversations that we don't have, particularly, you know, with our therapists. Um, and I started, you know, asking people about their relationship with wealth and that and not only asking them in a voyeuristic way or not asking them in a voyeuristic way, but not because only, money is so personal. <laughs> well, exactly. And not only asking, um, you know, about the positives, but really making space for them to express a full range of emotions around money. And then the conversations really got juicy. And, um, you know, I still know that I'm in the right business. I would say 95% of the time when I have a new client, I can almost set my watch by it. 20 minutes into the call, they'll say, I'm so happy I found you. I had no idea that this exists, first of all. And second of all, I have nowhere else to talk about this. So yes. that's really, you know, a mission of mine. You talk about legacy. What I hope a legacy of mine will be is making space for people to talk about whatever it is they need to talk about in a non-judgmental environment. That's wonderful. I once had a friend say to me, and I can, of course, uh, edit this out, but he once said to me, it's easier to ask somebody the last time they had sex than how much is in their bank account. For sure. I agree. You know, I had a really good friend growing up, probably my oldest and dearest friend, and we would talk about everything with each other. Um, and when I graduated, when I got my PhD, She'd already been in the business world for a long time. She went right out of undergraduate. She worked in a, in a big marketing firm in Chicago. And I once asked her what she, you know, what she was earning because I really had no idea um, because I hadn't been in the business world what salaries were like and what people were earning. And she was so offended, um, you know, and if, had I asked her, you know, what went on a date, she wouldn't have thought twice about it, but this, she felt like was really inappropriate. So uh, let me ask you, why do you think money is such a hot topic in our society and especially with women, which we're going to talk about in a moment further? Yeah, I, I, I think a couple of things. I think um, a lot of why it's such a hot topic is because we don't have enough open conversation about it. Um, you know, I always say to my clients that um, you could go to a Michelin star restaurant, have amazing food, bring home a doggy bag, and the food in there is amazing. But if you put it in your refrigerator and you forget about it, eventually it's going to start to go bad. And right. it's not because there's anything wrong with that food. It's because you haven't paid attention to it. You haven't examined it. And we don't really have an examined life around money. We have a lot of fantasies about money and what money will get us. Okay. Um, and we have a lot of, uh, often have a lot of disdain and anger around people with money, um, but we don't really have, a, a, most of us don't have a 
good sense of our own relationship with money and how it plays a role in our lives. Yes, I, I know you've talked before about uh, how both ownership as well as purchase, personal agency around money comes up. Whether somebody wants to take ownership, whether they're second generation or they come into it, it's almost like this gift. And do they want to take personal agency similar to someone's legacy um, or do they just want to deny and ignore it? Well, again, I think, you know, what I know from my work as a psychologist and my experience with humans is that we all want to have agency in our life. We all want to be the masters of our life. Sometimes though we get overwhelmed and we don't have places to talk about conflicted feelings. And when that happens, that really can take our life in a different trajectory if we don't have an open opportunity. And for most people who have either made the money or inherited the money, if you say, I have some ambivalent, confused feelings about money, I don't just have only positive feelings, money hasn't only been a benefit in my life, that doesn't play well in the rest of the world. People feel like it's obnoxious or- Or how dare you? Right, or yeah. it's entitled or I'll trade with you because we don't have, again, a really nuanced understanding of our relationship. And, and we tend to deicize money, you know, where money is really just, a neutral form of barter, but it's taken on such big proportions and in our society. It's, it's definitely been sensationalized given the covers of business magazines and newspapers and the top list of the 40 this and the top 100 of the 30 under 30. Yes, absolutely. So one of the benefits I think that you bring to your practice is um, how your parents raised you. And one of the things you've talked about before is roots compared to wings and some of the best practices your, your parents brought. Would you like to share any of those? Sure. Um, you know, roots and wings was always a saying that my parents talked about is really, you know, grounding your children in your values and um, raising them with values and then allowing them to take off. And, you know, not micromanaging how they're going to live their life, particularly around money. I think that it was really helpful that my parents had a lot of conversations with us. They gave us a lot of opportunity to experiment with money, to make mistakes with money, to fail with money um, on small levels when we were young. So that by the time we got older, not to say that we don't still make mistakes with money, but we have more of a fluency in knowing how to use it. Yes. I remember one of the stories you shared was that if you saved a certain amount, your parents would match it. Yes, always. We had these, um, I don't know, little strong boxes with our names on them and little uh, bank ledger books. And we had to always like enter our allowance and then, um, you know, keep track of it. And then at the end of the year, whatever we had saved, they would match. Yes. I think that's a marvelous idea because one of the things we're going to talk about in a moment is financial literacy and where are some good uh, places to start to, to, to gather and garner that. But I think that at the home, that's one place. If, if parents are willing to do those exercises and activities with their children, um, I think another example you mentioned is if you took a trip, um, there could be a book report or some type of report that would be written up. 
always. We, we did a lot of traveling as a family, which I think was also one of the biggest gifts that my parents gave me um, because it really allowed me. I mean, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Um, so, you know, kind of Midwest, rural, I'm not rural, it's a big city, but you know, it's not, it's not such a big city. Um, and I could have thought that, you know, the whole world looked like Columbus, Ohio, which really would have been inaccurate. So having the ability to see how different people live, um, and, um, having a bigger, um, opportunity to to have data points but yes we oh it was always sort of um attached to to education we would do research on um first it started out that we traveled within the united states so you know we would each have a city or a state we had to do that place and what fun things could go, you could go and do and then as we got older and we started traveling abroad then it was about you know, the, the, the culture and the history and the money. And um, as we got even older still, then we were in charge of, um, you know, making the reservations and holding the money and, you know, uh, making sure that we knew what the currency exchange rate was. So, you know, it was very hands-on. And then we were also responsible of always um, making like a family album. Um, you know, memorializing the trip for, for our family. So, you know, we got to feel like we were taken on a trip, but we also had certain responsibilities and certain things as members of the family to make that trip that much more special. That's wonderful. And how brilliant. I, I moved 10 times growing up. So um, as a as the child of a, an Air Force officer. So it's valuable in the real world experience. So that's amazing. So they had ledgers, they matched their reports with travel. Is there anything else that your parents did that you found um, helpful later on in your life? Maybe even how, when you raised your own children, that might be good for the listener or the viewer to uh, learn about. Yeah, my parents have always been um, community leaders and have always given back not only um, with money and philanthropy, but also with their time and their expertise. Um, and that was a really great model um, to see, you know, that they weren't only telling us that these things are important, um, but they were really um, showing it with their actions. That's wonderful. And so um, as your family tree grows, these practices can be carried on, at, even as a part of the legacy, one might say. Absolutely. In fact, my son kind of called me on it the other day because I've been talking about we got one of the, you know, me and everybody else in the world got, who got a Corona puppy. And <laughs> one of the reasons I said I wanted to get a Corona puppy was because I wanted to teach it to be like a therapy dog and then bring it to, and do some volunteer work in the hospitals. Um, now the puppy's only, she's not even 11 months old, but you know, my son said to me the other day, you know, you said you were going to go and do this volunteer work, but I haven't seen you do it yet. So like, um, you know, not only did I have the example for my parents, but now I have my kids who are keeping me honest to being accountable to what I say. You have to love children and their honesty. <laughs> yeah, well, he's uh, almost 24. So, uh, you know, but but I, I really love that he was tracking 
You know, our, our kids are always tracking at whatever age that the difference between what we say and what we actually do. And so the fact that he was looping back with me of like, you know, mom, that was a great idea. When are you going to start putting that into action? And he did it in a very loving way. I really appreciated that. That's wonderful. So um, in addition to what I might call some of the best practices that your parents did, I know that you're also passionate about the words we choose to use in conversations. So would you like to talk about that for a moment? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, that's part and parcel of making conversations sort of psychologically safe. And I think we often use words that, um, you know, there's a lot of words in our language that are very, um, particularly their inheritors, very derogatory, you know, like, um, they trigger people. Yeah. And I think that, um, I think we just have to be careful, you know, I, I, even like, I remember, um, a friend of mine once said to me, um, a friend who came home with me from college and said, oh, I would have never guessed you were wealthy. You don't act like you're wealthy. And at the time, I thought that was really like a compliment. Like, I don't act like somebody is wealthy. But then I really realized, like, that was kind of a backhanded compliment. Like, what did that mean? What what, what the expectation? And what does somebody who's wealthy act like? You know, like, is there one way that wealthy people are supposed to act? And I wasn't acting up to it. So, you know, I, I think that what I see from my clients, particularly my inheritor clients, is um, often a sense of shame and embarrassment and hiding. Sure. And um, because, you know, we put silence on earning it and being worth it. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think we really have to be careful because people are very sensitive to those comments. And, you know, I, I, I say this a little off color, you might not like this, but, you know, uh, that same friend that I asked her about her salary, she, she always had large breasts growing up. And she would always wonder if guys dated her for the size of her breasts or because they liked her. So I kind of talk about Sometimes there's this big boob syndrome with having wealth that people don't know. Are you, do people like you for your money or do they like you for you? Sure. And, you know, nobody wants to be known either for, you know, a bodily feature or for what's in their bank account. They want to be liked for who they are. Yes. Yes. Would you share the, the, um, the, the how, how you responded to your friend in college? Because I thought it was brilliant what you said back to him. Because you just handled it that moment. And I think yeah, that, that for anyone who's listening, they could be like, I've been in the, those same exact shoes. And I just thought you handled it really well that moment to just kind of take the sting out for all parties. Yeah, that was actually a different a different conversation. That was a boyfriend right, right. Um, who, who came home with me from school. And as we we're driving up my driveway, he said, you know, Jamie, stop the car. Like, and I said, what's going on? He said, you aren't the person that I thought you were. Um, and I had this sinking in my heart, like, oh, my God, you know, what's happening here? And um, it is one of the very few. I think there's maybe one other time when I had the perfect response at the perfect moment. And I just looked at him and I said, listen, Kevin, 
nothing about me has changed except your perception of me. I am still the exact same person I was 20 minutes ago. The only thing that's changed here is that you have a new insight into some, some aspect of how I grew up, but it doesn't make me now not the person that you thought I was. So, and he, you know, God love him to his credit. He was like, oh, you're absolutely right. And just went on from there. Yes. Yes. So that I, again, I just wanted to, to bring up your answer. Cause I thought it, it settled the, the, you know, that emotional trigger of, uh, these presumptions people can have around stereotypes. And so going back to language for a moment, I know that you make a distinction between the word breadwinner and the word contributor. Yes. Um, you know, I think that, um, I'm not sure where breadwinner even really comes from. It would be interesting to look back at the The derivation of it, but, um, It makes me uh, think of, uh, I think there was an old perfume commercial with a woman. She said, you know, I can bring home the bacon uh, (laughs) and fry it up in the pan and never let you forget you're the man, you know, like, um, but um, I think that we all contribute different things. And I, I think we make a mistake when we put so much valence on the person who brings the money into the relationship. Um, and again, give them so much power over decision-making or whatever. I, I think that um, in a good relationship, everybody contributes something. Just like I said about growing up in my family, you know, we certainly weren't paying for the trips, but we were contributing with you know, helping the whole family have a better understanding of the history of the places that we we're visiting being able to memorialize the trip. And I think if people look at their relationship, in fact, um, this is very much where I, my interests lie right now. I'm currently doing a research study looking at what I call financially diverse couples. So couples who come into the marriage with different degrees of wealth. And because there's no research on this yet, really, I'm starting with a very circumstantial definition of financially diverse couples, although the definition is much broader, but for the purposes of my um, beginning research, I'm looking at heterosexual couples who are married or divorced, where the woman from an inheritance um, comes into the marriage with more money than her husband, and how that plays into and um, it's been extremely um, interesting. Um, I think the most interesting thing is how taboo of a subject. I don't think I recognized how taboo of a subject it was until I got into this research. Um, and I have interviewed a lot of people, but almost no couples. I've only been able to interview about four couples because it is such a hot topic that people say, well, I'm willing to talk to you about it, but I couldn't possibly ask my my husband or my wife because that we just don't talk about these things. And so again, it's that same analogy of having the leftovers and putting them in the the refrigerator. Um, Money is the number one thing that couples with any range of, of 
you know, resources fight about. So when there's a big discrepancy between what each partner brings financially to the marriage and you don't talk about it, you really increase the opportunity for there to be problems in the marriage. And again, just as we said, with the difference between breadwinner and contributor, I'm not saying that that means, you know, that the person who has more money should have, you know, is better, should have more of anything. Um, I, I, I think that we can look at what each person brings and contributes from their own background, just like we would in any couple where there's a difference, a difference in race, a difference in, um, you know, ethnicity, a difference in religion. Yes, very much so. And I can imagine it brings up themes around um, like power and access to resources, or even just this idea of value, like uh, is one party more valuable than another? And again, it's great that you're bringing some of the qualitative aspects um, because we're more than just a balance sheet. We're more than just a number. Even if maybe when we step out the door, neighbors or associates could look at, at us through those quantitative factors, you're still you know, bringing up, hey, let's look at some of the qualitative features because that's the meaning of life and the richness of life. And it's more than just the of sensationalism of you know, how money is glamorized in the media. Absolutely, well said. So um, do you have uh, any closing thoughts you'd like to bring? Um, if not, I, I would like to ask you again what, you're, what you would like your legacy to be and also why it matters. Um, well, you know, I was thinking about this question and um, <laughs> I feel like my answer, I, I have two answers because I feel like the first one's kind of trite, even though when I really, really think about it, it is my answer. I think that, um, you know, the best legacy that I or anybody has the ability to leave is raising good children and, you know, passing on your values. And um, so, you know, that really is, I think, my most important legacy. Um, professionally, the legacy is around having safe space for people to talk about whatever it is that they're going through in life. Um, you know, I happen to focus on, on, you know, the emotional impact of money, wealth, and privilege in people's lives um, because I don't think there's enough opportunity for people to have safe conversations, but it certainly isn't the only conversation or necessarily the most important conversation, but it is important that whatever we're facing in our lives, that we find safe opportunities to explore all of our, you know, varying fear, feelings about who we are. Right. Yes. If we can't talk about what I call the iceberg underneath the water at some point. <laughs> right. And then it dips because the iceberg is usually much bigger than the surface area that's showing above. Yes. Yes. So what is the best way if an individual who's listening or watching this, what's the best way they could reach you? So, um, you know, I, I'll put in a shameless plug. We are still looking for more people to interview. So I would love to have people, if they fit the criteria, to be part of the research. So whether it's for research or if you want to have an initial cons consulting conversation with me about the work that I do with individuals and families, you can reach me on my website, 
which um, will you be able to provide that? Yes, yes. If you want me to say here? Um, it'll be in the show notes, but you could say it also, whatever you prefer. Okay, so wealthlegacygroup.org. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, well, thank you, Jamie, so much for um, the intention that you brought to this conversation, which is to let other people know that there is a place of comfort that they can go to to talk about these subjects, whether it is wealth or privilege or even um, that hot taboo topic of, uh, you know, when women might be bringing in more money to the relationship. And again, um, let's find words and language to help comfort individuals so that they don't feel like they're alienated on some type of island where they have to bear the burden all alone, in in addition to the pressure that they're feeling, whether it's from their career or just being in society because all eyes are on them and they feel like they have to be flawless. So I appreciate the sensitivity and the warmth that you are bringing to those subjects, because again, people need places where they can um, unpack these subjects and understand them better. um, So they just don't go along with how everyone else is seeing them, but they can find their own voices. Well, thank you. And thank you for providing this opportunity to have the conversation that, you know, more people who might be struggling with these things might find that there's places to talk about this. Very good. Very nice. Thank you so much. And to anyone who's listening, please like and subscribe. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. We hope that you found the conversation valuable and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you.